0: And we're live. Airhorn, 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 airhorn.
1: Fwa, 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 fwa. Hello, everybody out there. This is Sean from the Antifada. Today, we are trying something that has perhaps never been done before in the history of communist podcasts. We are having a menage a pod. This is a crossover between the Antifada and Hello, Brett, the Revolutionary Left Radio. What's up, man?
2: Yes, hello. Thank you for letting me in on this beautiful three-way we find ourselves in the middle of. Um, I am Brett, the host of Revolutionary Left Radio and the co-host of our brand new show, Red Menace. Uh, People may be more or less familiar with the interview style of of Rev Left Radio, but since Red Menace is is brand new, I'll just say that the, the goal of Red Menace is to take communist theory, and break it down to three parts to explain it, to analyze it, and then to apply its lessons to our current conditions. So our first uh, work was on um, Engels, Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific, and we just released that. and We're doing Lenin's Imperialism next. So it's really fun to tackle these you know, essential works of, of left-wing theory and then see how we can apply them to the situations we're in today. So yeah, that's a little bit about me and my shows.
1: Awesome, good shit, and we have a bunch, a whole gang of Swampside hey, chats. Hey. What's up, guys? Hey, you'll How's find this is the biggest menage
0: pod that you'll ever see because we got four, count 'em, four of the Swamp Fam live and uncut. So, what's up? I'm Lexi, um, high and gay in Arizona. Uh,
3: I'm Jake. I'm uh, I'm from that show, Swampside Chats. That's the show.
0: <laughs> Love it, girl. Work the camera.
3: Rosa here,
4: sober and bisexual, I guess. I don't I don't fucking know in Chicago. Whoa.
1: Grant Hello, uh
5: Grant here, panelist on Swampside here representing Australian
1: school Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> wow that Bush Marxism, damn. Yeah. <laughs> This is uh this is really exciting because uh listeners to the Antifada will know that uh we have collaborated with uh Brett in the past and you know, want to do so in the future. And I do believe that it was was I the one responsible, Brett, for introducing you to uh what Swampside does?
2: Yeah, you actually you were the first one to, to bring them to my attention and then I had a I drove to the Marxist center this, this autumn by myself. So it's about an eight hour drive Oof. and all I listened to on the whole way there and back was Swampside chats. So that's how, that was really, I got you know baptized by fire by listening <laughs> to eight hours. Great. Was Swampside. But I love it. I love it. So I'm glad to be, be able to finally collab with them too. Wow. Uh,
0: how do you do that? I mean, we can't even. <laughs> I can barely <laughs> I can listen to myself talk that for that long. Yeah.
1: <laughs> You're right. Well, I don't think Rose has
3: ever listened to an episode of this show ever. <laughs> I, I have not. No, actually, um,
1: the I, I think I think the uh, a true professional podcaster never listens to their own work. That's how you do uh, yeah. it. I, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't
4: even know what I sound like. So, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, with, yeah, Go ahead,
3: Jake. I, w- I wish I could say I was that cool, and I, but I, have, I have listened back to episodes before. So, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like what we try and do on our show. You know, because you know, there's like a million podcasts out there where it's like they, you know, they'll watch like, you know, Breaking Bad or shit like that, and then talk about an episode, or they'll read a chapter from something and talk about, like, that's basically what our show is, but with like Marxist theory instead of like pop culture stuff. You know, yeah. And there's not a lot. Of, there's not a lot of stuff out there like that. There aren't. I mean, you know, we talk about how there's like a Menage podcast or whatever, but I mean, this is probably like the first time in history there were this many communist podcasts. Period. You know what I mean? Yes. Like yeah. there's. Probably like 10 years no, no. ago, there would not like three podcasts about communism that existed that could have talked to each other. You know what I mean? So Yeah,
0: it would have been what, like uh, Zero oh, – I'm sorry. It would have been like Diet Soap and From Alpha to Omega and – Which was
3: the Diet Soap uh, knockoff right.
0: basically. Yeah, but with, <laughs> but with math instead of Hegel.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: and then Ellipsis actually. I think that would have been it.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, I think what you guys do is um, is impressive and, and difficult. Um, I think that like if we break our three podcasts down, Antifada, uh, we do a lot of different shit. We do some of that like watch you know Handmaid's Tale and talk shit on it with a guest. Uh, mm-hmm. We you know, have uh, you know all sorts of different cool folks on. We try to get into the theoretical stuff, but we never do as deep a dive as Swampside does. And you guys do it really, really well and um we aren't quite as eclectic as uh rev left is um the whole network of rev left radio is uh so i think all three of us together uh are a trifecta of uh communist power so um i think maybe you guys want to mention about uh, that the enemy camp series you do which is really good <laughs> it's so nice
0: yeah oh, well as we're we're coming together to form the real movement here um I I guess we should kind of break down what Swampside does a little bit. Like, yeah, we do all kinds of socialist texts from the uh, past and present. Um, We like digging old shit up. But we also sometimes delve into the enemy camp, which is our series of reading reactionaries and giving the old Swampside take on it. um, We're not in it just to shit on them. We do think that, you know, you can abstract useful ideas and concepts and insights from otherwise irredeemable fascists, um, and that's those are some of our most popular episodes. Uh, the Nick Land one, uh, Uncle
3: Ted's excellent adventure. That
0: was a good um, episode. <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: and
0: it's uh, good,
3: yeah, it's good to look at that stuff because you know, like especially in the last few years, like you know, I guess for a long time, really, fascism is like the perpetual boogeyman for like the left. To the even when they're, it doesn't really even meaningfully exist or in any sense. So right. it's good to actually look at the actual theorists of it. And to see the divisions within the right and not just see it as this kind of like, you know, one giant monolith of like evil or whatever, you know.
5: Yeah, we we get to look at the mirror universe.
2: Yeah. Or, yeah uh, I, I particularly like the, uh, the Nick Land episode um, because, I, you know, I have so much shit to read all the time that I don't set time aside to read reactionaries. But like, I know I would benefit from understanding them at a deeper level and all the nuances and complexity. So that whole little subseries that Swampside does is, is really is really useful. I, I highly recommend
1: it. Definitely, and I um, am a sick, perverted fuck, and uh, I love to hate read things. <laughs> I just finished a two-hour episode of History as a Weapon on the Camp of Saints by Jean Raspail, one of the most odious, racist, disgusting, uh, anti-immigrant, uh, Western chauvinist texts that are out there that is making a huge comeback. It's been republished, yeah. huh. and I think they've sold half a million copies uh, in the last couple of Jesus. years of uh, this brutal reactionary text and so we kind of took a deep dive into french history to do the same thing you guys are trying to do is kind of tease out you know what why why is this book becoming popular now you know it was the turner diaries in the 90s why is it raspal uh today mm-hmm. so i think getting into that enemy enemy camp is a uh an important thing um that said uh i'm not sure that we're gonna be going into an enemy camp unless anybody feels really really strongly about (laughs) this form of marxist theory uh folks today uh listeners we will be talking about broadly what is termed the communization movement a um outgrowth of uh communist thought from the late 20th century mostly in france but now has spread to the anglophone world uh, it's something I think of, uh, I don't know, not a, sh- a shibboleth, but like a, uh, a boogeyman <laughs> for large parts of the left. Uh, I think especially Marxists who believe that uh, this theory has a very corrupting influence on our practice. So let's go around and uh, I'll go last. But um, why don't we uh, go with Brett next? Brett, what uh, before we read these texts in... Um, noise noises, um communization and its discontents what was your impression of what communization theory was uh leading uh into that
2: so i had not really engaged with communization theory pretty much at all um i've never sort of organically came across it during a lot of my political development i'd hear about it you know i, I have little puzzle pieces of different parts where I, oh maybe that's what communization is blah 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 but after i started doing the show listeners started pushing for an episode of that sort. And I think I even reached out at one point like last year to Benjamin Noyes asking him to come on. And for some reason that he replied, but that fell apart. So I kind of came into this whole thing with, with pretty fresh eyes. I didn't have a lot of inbuilt biases or, you know, a good idea of what I was getting into. I kind of liked that too. I wanted to sort of address this text and and these readings from a a sort of position of neutrality and not read up too much before it, you know, to, to paint my, my interpretation of it. So I kinda of walked in blind to this. So it was sort of a interesting, challenging, and revelatory experience for me to to dive into communization theory the way we did this time.
1: Excellent. Uh Lexi, and then I guess we can do the whole swap mm. side round. Uh what do you uh what was your impression before you jumped in here? If any. Uh well,
0: I experienced the wave of communization having moved to California um years and years ago looking for, you know, some kind of Adults that were left-wing in the United States and um, still find it kind of lacking. But the point (laughs) being is while I was out there, um, Occupy Wall Street popped off in New York and there was its parallel at uh, Occupy Oakland. And of course, I I attended UC Davis when the infamous pepper spray incident happened. Um, Ooh, it spawned a
1: million memes. Yes, yes. Um,
0: I was there and I am... Very, very proud to say that I absconded off that fucking quad with my property before, <laughs> and my tent before everyone got pepper sprayed, so I guess I could have been involved, but i my New York sensibilities didn't have that sense of commonality where I wanted to get um beat on by cops so i'm uh I'm not the most valorous heroine um but let me I'll put it that way this way is that like those kids that got pepper sprayed? Um, there was a sort of weatherman effect of radicalization that happened. And part of their uh, sort of, you know, spiraling (laughs) was um, getting woke to, you know, the hottest sexiest new theory and a read end notes was sort of a refrain for them. And now I will say that there was a, there's a sort of vitalist tendency to the newer communizers that i think sickens endnotes um <laughs> but um but that was that was the that was when i first encountered it so uh, in a lot of ways swampside chats w- was a project of people of marxists who had encountered communization were a bit frustrated with it but were trying to wrestle with it and rebuild revolutionary marxism um that took uh a program and transition to communism more seriously Because communization had a reason for being was that, you know, the 20th century didn't work out. And all attempts at transition to communism seemed absurd for when they were writing. Um, So,
1: yeah, that's something I think we're definitely going to get into. Right. The reasons for this problematic being raised at this particular time. Um, The uh, next contestant on what is your view of communization? I don't know. Just throw it out. Uh, uh, Rosa, (laughs) uh, what were your impressions uh, coming into this? uh coming into this I had really
4: not that much of a history with communionization communization theory. Um I think when I was still like a baby ultra leftist, I would sometimes like just like like uh talk about abolishing the value form even though I did not know what the hell that meant. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I would link to uh link to like the one end notes article. I think in like um in Volume 4? I can't remember. There's some article on Abolition of the Value Form or something dumb like that. I can't remember. I would always that? link to it, and I would absolutely not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I read a little bit more on it later on, and I, I was like, man, this is actually kind of dumb. Why why was I even pretending to be into this? And I was a babby ultra left, and that's you know that's the impression coming in, and I don't think much of that really changed, honestly,
0: okay,
1: so it's an enemy <laughs> camp for you then uh, <laughs> grant I, uh, I, there go ahead, Alex, you had something to say uh, I think you might
0: be think, I think you might be thinking of communization value form theory from a notes two um yes, no, maybe so, yeah, probably i, I don't oh, it's yeah,
3: uh, anyway it's a yeah, long time.
1: Just, just a shot. We can go to um to Jake next. Jake, are you ready?
3: Sure. Um yeah, so communization when it first kind of popped because like, when did EndNotes one come out? When was that? Does, uh, what was that again? Oh, EndNotes one sure was, was like or
0: eight. Eight. nine. Yeah. Okay. Was, like, yeah.
3: Yeah, so I really wasn't like hip enough to like know about that when it first kind of in like its initial salad days, you know what I'm saying? And by the time I, I did like some Occupy shit and that was kind of where I first got involved politically or whatever and so at that time stuff like the coming insurrection kind of made sense to me but even then i kind of thought it was a little voluntaristic um after that i mean the closest i got to being into combination into communization stuff was like dave but he still kind of tethered more to like the left communist tradition so it was always just this kind of thing that was around that never like super lined up with my interests and you know i heard a lot of people like making fun of they're kind of prescriptions for doing things and kind of like, you know, compared it to Pol Pot and shit. Uh, but, you know, uh, so yeah, I just never really got that into it. I mean, I've, I've read different things. I think, I think I've think i read a bunch of stuff from Endnotes 3. Uh, and there were, some, there were some useful things in here, but I was always skeptical of the overall framework. And having read this, I still am.
1: All right. Uh, Grant, what do you got for us?
5: Well, my experience with communization started with encountering the more insurrectionary anarchist currents that came after the Marxist currents first, through my time as a Marxist adjacent to the IWW and more more so a lifestyleist anarchist scene that I knew in college. And so I was never deeply into communization, but I did shoplift a copy of The Coming Insurrection and, and I found the French poetry um, and maybe the suggestion that perhaps there is something to do now, in spite of this apparent mass political inertia, interesting. Um, though later on, I encountered the Duvet and the more directly Marxist communization, which resonated somewhat with my anti-politics, but not anti-party perspective. And, and these communizationists, we read, seem derived from Duvet. So I, I like them more than the kind of tukun, coming insurrection tendency. I, I think it's interesting that Endnotes sees us as in the midst of a long paradigm shift. I disagree about the, the details, but um, I think that's totally true, even where I see them conflating the political and economic and things of that nature. So, oh. for, for example, where I see bourgeois politics as having exhausted itself during the interwar period and the social democracy that follows, to me, is a retreat into the state to keep politics aloft um, that shows the social underpinnings were already coming apart. Endnotes tends to see... Social democracy, pretty much as social democracy sees itself, which is as a victory of the workers movement, more or less.
1: Oh, I guess I'm up next. Uh, did we get everybody? That would be you. Oh, my God. It's on me now. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> I have to say that um, I have a lot of uh, experience with this, uh, you know, not to get too personal, but uh, like many of us here, uh, maybe all of us, I don't know. I spent, uh, I'd say, the first 15 years of my political life as, I'd say, somewhat of an anarchist, uh, you know, a class struggle Anarchist. And then in 2008, around that same time that Endnotes got published, uh, a crisis of capitalism happened. And, uh, I am no Karl Marx, but similar to Marx, uh, with the failure of the 1848 uh, revolution, I said to myself, maybe it's time to get into this economic shit. So uh, I started to take um, Marxist analysis, Marxian analysis seriously, and started to do a deep, deep dive uh, into not only the primary sources, but also what came after it. That is to say that kind of my gateway from being an anarcho, uh, into being more of a, a Marxist uh, would was actually uh, communization theory itself, was Endnotes. Uh, in fact, one of the members of the Endnotes collective is a very, very good friend of mine, I will not dox him, of course. And uh, we and a bunch of our other friends, like uh, Common Situ, which is a person that people might know from Twitter or uh, elsewhere, and a bunch of other friends really started to dive deep uh, into this theory. Uh, To the extent that in, uh, I believe it was 2000, what was it, 2010, I want to say, this journal SIC, which is, uh, it's abortive now, but it was a journal of international communization, had its first editorial meeting. And me, having the opportunity to go, went and uh, met uh, Thierry Communiste, uh, met Blaumachen, met TPTG, uh, TBT, whatever it is, uh, Riff Raff, uh, and the rest of the Endnotes crew. And I was actually there at the inception of the kind of abortive attempt to make communization a... uh, I don't know, a, a tendency that was more than just this balkanized uh, thing. Um, I have some good stories out of that, if you guys want to hear it maybe <laughs> later. Uh, the, these, the, the, the theory communist people especially are uh, a wild bunch. But uh, importantly, I think um, while I, I may have uh, moved on since then, you know, because we're talking 10 years ago, um, it, it was kind of formative for me, I think, as a way to sort of as this bridge you know from from this conception of maybe a, a more um, syndicalist anarchism uh into something that's you know more tied into programmatism as uh know it's in t c would call it and uh more tied into the the more orthodox marxist position so I don't know do you guys have any uh, do you guys want to know what theory communiste was like
0: oh for sure i guess full <laughs> i guess full disclosure um after I saw occupy fail and like, I started to think, well, I, I guess I kind of understand why the Bolsheviks executed some anarchists now. Um, <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I, I uh, w- went, I moved back to Berkeley and was bouncing back and forth between, actually, I'm sorry, I moved, I moved to Oakland and was bouncing back and forth between some uh, trots at uh, the community college in Berkeley and this uh, reading group run by one of the uh, Endnotes collaborators um, on left communism and on their fabulous uh, communist research cluster series, uh, which I recommend for it 's like a series of primary sources i don 't know just a full disclosure
1: <laughs> oh, so you are adjacent as well uh, I think I know that yeah um, so i I mean I could talk more about that uh, later on if you guys want, or I could just spill some tea right now it 's up to you. Spill it. I I see no reason to prevent
0: you from spilling tea.
1: (laughs) Go for it. All right. Well, uh, due to our ability to get counterfeit um, uh, Eurorail tickets, uh, I managed to make my way to uh, Marseille on the – the uh, fast train, and I went down there and uh, sat in a room with uh, all these communization theory people for several days, uh, drinking, uh, smoking cigarettes, and eating, as the French are prone to do. Uh, theory communists themselves, uh, they are—they come out of 68, uh, right? So for the folks at home that, that don't know, in May 68, there was a insurrection and near revolution in France that... Uh was abortive for various reasons, but all of the folks in TC um, experienced that and lived through that, and we're trying to grapple, I think, with that. So we're talking about your old men, and uh, without getting too far into it, I'll, I'll give the best story. Uh, his, his name is uh, Woland. He uh, writes... Um, you know within the t c collective, but he also writes separately from that Woland, uh, not his real name, but whatever um, he was at we were at the bar one night we were drinking, and he said uh, we asked him you know what what is this process of abolishing the value form look like uh, Someone mentioned Pol Pot earlier, and uh, you know <laughs> with a a glass of wine in his hand, Woland, this old man with long stringy hair was like. You do not. I can't do a French accent. He's like, you do not understand what the horrors of the revolution will be. He's like, for a generation, you will have famine and plague. There will be thirty years of a return to primitive surgery, <laughs> and we're all sitting there like, wow, cool vision, dude. <laughs> so that kind of shows uh, where they're at in their in their headspace.
0: <laughs> oh, so Amazing. Pol Pot ain't that far off?
1: Maybe yeah. Not.
5: yeah,
4: apparently. Yeah, the well, frogs never fail to disappoint.
5: Never. <laughs> I think we should evaluate this like Angles would, though. Um, by which I mean, you mentioned there was a lot of drinking. Were were TC able to outdrink you, or were you <laughs> able
1: to outdrink them?
5: I'm just trying uh, to take an Anglesian perspective.
1: Well, it's tough because uh, you know, as folks know, I I, I I can hold my own in a drinking match. I think even better because especially because we're talking about Granouille. You know, we're talking about French. It's uh, they certainly outsmoked everybody else. Uh, you know, so uh, many so many ashtrays filled with uh, Galois. I could never even actually count them. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was quite the experience. Um, let's uh, let's take a break everybody um, and kind of uh, like reset, reset ourselves. Cause unless anybody has something else to add, uh, we should probably go into our next section. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That sounds good. Brett, how are you doing
2: over there? I'm doing good. So the next sec, the next uh, section. Yeah. So given the fact that communization theory is, is big and it has multiple strains For this, at least this first episode of of this ongoing series, we confined ourselves to the first five chapters of Communization and its Discontents, which is uh, basically a group of essays edited by Benjamin Noyes, and in it, you know, the first five or so chapters kind of lay out differing, you know, main strains of Communization, sort of has some internal critique of itself and responding to other, um, you know, Communization theorists, etc. So that's what this, at least this first conversation, is going to focus on, and perhaps a good way to start getting into some of these ideas and some of the critiques, although it's a very difficult question, is to maybe gesture towards some definition of communization. So if there's a listener of any of our shows listening for the first time, let's say this is the first time they've ever really heard of the the word communization, don't know much about it. What would be some ways that we could help people get acquainted to sort of the overall scheme of what the communists, the communization theorists are trying to do here? Uh,
4: Yeah, I'm Max. Yeah, I was basically going to just sort of like give like a kind of rough definition that I ge- generally when I think of communion, communization, I think of it in terms of like this sort of collapse of like a transitional mode that's usually in Marxist thought, whether it's like the dictatorship of the proletariat, some kind of like socialism, a lower stage of communism, like all that just sort of gets collapsed completely into just communionization. There is no transition into communism. Communism just happens in, directly in the moment. Directly in the moment and sort of like the the engagement in terms of like rioting, you know, uh the sort of like weird thing that Jasper Barnes describes in like an essay that he wrote relatively recently about like um can't remember the name of it. It was like um
0: The belly of the revolution
4: the belly of the revolution that's sort of like, like vaguely delinking sort of communionization thing of counter-logistics and that sort of, thing. yeah, but basically it is, you know, sort of trying to do communism in this sort of like mom- moment uh just straight out right out of the bat, which really kind of separates it from like any kind of traditional Marxism and places it more closer to anarchism than Marxism, even though there are strains that are coming out of a Marxist framework, I guess.
5: I do like, in communization, maybe, the emphasis on the need to change social relations and that that's a process which, which could start now, perhaps. I think what I mean by social relations there, you can't expect a dictatorship of the proletariat. And I, I think at least communizationists like Duvet see the role of a dictatorship of the proletariat, maybe less so with endnotes. We, we we should dive into that. But that you can't expect a dictatorship of the proletariat not to be determined in some sense by the by the economic relations of the broader society, hence the impossibility of market socialism as a long term transitory method. And so I do think there is some some interesting things they're doing in challenging the idea of transition. I don't think that when it gets to the absurdities of, of abolish all mediation, abolish the use value, it's oppression to make myself a grilled cheese. Like you can't have a like you can't have a party. You can't have any organizational forms. You know the the proletariat. You know engages with the state and and any attempt to, we can disagree about what that engagement looks like, but putting that aside and, and acting like we could perhaps start communism today in these isolated autonomous zones, for example, I think that's something maybe we can all agree is absurd.
1: For sure.
0: Yeah, we can agree along with a lot of the authors that we read that it's absurd. That's the interesting thing is they're not really going for a like uh, what is it that sort of mutualist like interstitial hey we're gonna build up our alternative society in the cracks you know that's not the kind of anarchism that you get here Um, the guy I think who came up with the word communization you can correct me if I'm wrong of course uh, is like Gilles Duvet and he kind of reminds me of an ultra-left Marxist you know like he basically thinks that the proletariat around labor activity even if it doesn't have any need for a party per se, will still be like, you know, that will still be the revolutionary subject and they will know their own name as they do it. And there will be some kind of, I don't know, negative process associated with like workers' identity. But um, but he still seems like a Marxist to me. The majority of the theorists under communization, I think more or less have to take a look at the old marx bakunin debates and say shit bakunin was right marx was dead up wrong you can't really do class politics you can't really do labor politics in any meaningful sense and um any attempts at some class dictatorship is just gonna end up like a you know the dictatorships of the 20th century and
3: are you saying that these people are neo bakuninists
0: i am i think that's fair and the thing that makes them most interesting is that they articulate themselves with a, uh with value theory, they articulate themselves with historical materialism and with you know super frog gibberish that is associated with uh, cri- Marxist critical theory, notably the French Marxist uh Louis Althusser. Um there's a huge big mushroom stamp of his uh his uh brand on a lot of this stuff. So um I guess if I were going to be to try to define communization more generally, aside from duvet, it's you know Bakunin was right about politics, but we're going to still try to be Marxists in political economy
3: so I think you can find a lot of the germ of this thinking in uh if you read Duve's history of the German Revolution, uh, if you ever read that he basically he you know he describes a bunch of stuff that happens and then periodically he'll just say something to the effect of and then they were supposed to do communism but they didn't do communism because they were dumb. And then he'll go on and tell some more stuff that happened. Um, And, you know, that kind of connects pretty clearly to the sort of left communist uh, tradition of in matters of, you know, revolutionary strategy, arguing for basically to go on the offensive, right? You see that in, like, I think, Gorder's critique of um, the Brest-Levosk Treaty, where he basically said that they should have turned the Red Army around and invaded Europe um, instead of suing for time, as they ended up doing. And you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that stuff, but I think sometimes uh, it lacks nuance. And I think you can go down this you can end up going down this voluntarist rabbit hole where you start to almost sound like, you know, primos in terms of this idea like, oh man, we just need to we just need to do communism right now and just recover like the wild nature of man or whatever. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's 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 a slippery slope
1: yeah really, just to bounce off a lot of the points that folks made um I, I think that you know they're they're dealing with the dead weight of history in a way that I think is relatively unique because so often um on the left you know the Marxist left or the anarchist left, whatever the case may be, uh you have history um Red as, you know, a series of stabs in the back, you know, if you're a left com, or you have it as a series of um, failed leadership, if you're more of the Leninist position, uh, you have it as a... Uh a failure of, I don't know, popular will, if, if, you're, if you're in a different category. And I think what they're grappling with, and whether they do it correctly or not, I think it's, we should give them a little bit of credit, is that um, this idea of sectarianism, this idea of these worker states that are supposed to wither away but never did, this idea that there are going to be these stages where certain aspects of capitalism will remain that will you know, eventually be overcome, what they call themselves programmatism <laughs> as this sort of historical moment In uh, anti-capitalist politics, they they managed to create a sort of periodization, a way of um, bracketing off uh, the history of the workers movement uh, within the actual development of capitalism itself. So, you know, that is to say that um, the. It is a pure, it's a negative critique, right? And, and we know all of us, right? That over the last 40 years, uh, almost every semblance of, you know, what was the traditional workers' movement is, uh, is pretty much gone at this point in time. And a lot of people, as you guys have uh, noted, you know, especially like the Takunists, have looked for a different historical subject out there to be that agent which brings the revolution along. What communization theorists, especially TC and notes to an extent, say is that. We're going to recenter the working class, the proletariat, as that agent. But in this historical period, because of the development of capitalism and social relations, the proletariat can no longer affirm itself, right? Be a class in itself and for itself, but it must immediately confront its own existence as a class. And communization is that process whereby the proletariat abolishes itself in the course of a revolutionary process, which is, you know, sounds like some wild shit. But uh, you know they've they've got a pretty decent textual analysis of things, and uh, I don't know it, it, it's a good it's a it's a good uh, I don't know attempt maybe at trying to throw away some of the dead weight of the 20th century.
4: Uh, I, I think you just partially touched upon what I was going to touch upon. Like I was going to bring up, like you know Jake just sort of saying, "Oh yeah," and it, usually the critique ends with, "And the proletariat didn't do the thing that it was supposed to do, communism." But there's, like, a larger critique going on with, like, the way revolution was viewed by just, like, the workers' movement as a whole and the communist movement as sort of the affirmation of the proletariat's existence rather than, you know, a sort of workerism rather than, like, towards the self-abolition of the proletariat, which has some level of validity in terms of, like, understanding how... The workers' movement failed to a certain degree. However, it's it's still somewhat voluntaristic in its nature. Although I do appreciate, like it, like the first volume of endnotes is just like Dave, and like I'm forgetting the other group uh, theory, theory communist communists, yeah. theory communists, communists going back and forth in a series of polemics against each other about essentially what is like sort of like hardline structuralism embodied by theory communists and sort of a more voluntaristic kind of understanding of what went wrong with the twentieth century communist movement with Dave. Dave uh, yeah. Also Benj- i I wanna make a short comment on like Benjamin Noise in general. Like you know, Benjamin has a is pretty good at like breaking down the weaknesses of these sort of like I I'll just call them academically trendy sort of cons uh academically trendy sort of like high theory kinds of leftism. I I, I don't even know if you can call accelerationism le- left or whatever, but like like he did a pretty good job in malign velocities in terms of like breaking down the weaknesses of sort of accelerationism. As like a body of theory, and he does a pretty good job with this opening of like just like revealing what's specifically wrong with communization as like a whole, as a weird sort of confusing whole, is that inability to have like a meaningful description of how com- how they would actually work towards communism, even if they're trying to do communism in the moment.
0: Okay, so there's three points of orientation. That noise uh, brings out about communization. Um, He says that the communizing arguments post struggle in uh, immediate, imminent, and anti identity terms. Um, Immediate would, I think, just be the the sense that there's no um, transition to communism. Um, Imminent is this sense that, I don't know, this isn't something that is like built up as a historical process so much as it's in the air. Um, That's vague, but it's vague. Um, And then there's the anti-identity portion, which is probably the thing that is most, I don't know, obscured by the way that it's progressed as a scene. And that's like not just against workers' identity, but against the stability of identity more generally And, um, and how that functions as a revolutionary process.
1: Um I don't know if that helped anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, I I think that all of us are, are, are attempting to grapple with uh definition of something that is very hard to define. So <laughs> all of us together with Ben Noise, I think we did a decent job. Uh, before I throw it to Brett as we move on to sort of our more critical analyses, the only thing that I would say, you know, is especially when you're reading uh Theory Communiste or Endnotes, which are, you know, highly structural and maybe the more advanced Uh, theoretically uh, you know of these pieces Uh, a lot of this is happening on such a high level of abstraction That uh, it's very hard to take anything like practical out of it, which I think is one of the things that we're confronting here. Is that we're talking about, you know, the totality. We're talking about uh, the value form. We're talking about modes of production and like giant world historical events that are happening in just such a high plane that uh, you know. I I think we're some of us are a little lost. I know that I am, if only because that is the terrain on which they're dealing. So. Mm Brett, maybe you have something to say about that or just in general, what, what are some of your critiques uh, about the communization theory?
2: Sure. So we've talked about there being different strains of communization and broadly speaking, I guess you could say there's like a, a more Marxist left com strain and then a more like insurrectionary anarchist strain inside communization broadly. But the one thing from my understanding that they they both agreed on, like a core premise is that the radical projects of the 20th century, especially those of Leninism, which is I think what they mean when they say the projects of the 20th century, uh, that they, they argue that they're complete and abject failures. And more than that, one of the essays even called it quote unquote, terrible and bloody failure. So I guess just right away, I reject that premise. Um, so that might give you an idea of where I'm coming from throughout this discussion. I feel a strong temptation to lump the, the varied assortment of, of poetry and eclectic theory and like, insurrectionary ideas under the banner communization into the category of utopianism that Engels showed the limitations of, right? Any any bundle of communist theory, which like from the outset rejects a scientific approach to revolution, rejects the most successful and viable attempts at proletarian power of the past as unmediated disasters from which no real lessons except negative ones can be drawn, which caused like the greatest challenges to capitalist imperialist hegemony from the last century, mere coup d'etats, which at one point they, they called the Leninist taking over of state a coup d'etat as opposed to a revolution, um, and which instead relies on, which I think communization theory largely relies on, basically ideas generated by obscure groups in Europe with, with no real base of mass support. So those are bundles of theories that I immediately kind of feel skeptical towards, because in my opinion, good theory... It doesn't come out of, you know, necessarily armchairs, right? It comes out of, of practice. And so if we take that, then I value theory that is forged in practice by proletarian leaders in the crucible of revolutions, you know, working class struggles. I value that way more than I value theory that, you know, comes out of what I, I kind of take this to be like the preferential subjectivity of different groups and thinkers in Europe, you know? So for all its resentment and and hatred of Marxism, Leninism, communization theory, at least in my opinion, has never been able to do what Marxism-Leninism has. There's a reason why people from as diverse places as Burkina Faso and Vietnam and Cuba and the Philippines have at various times and to various degrees of success like picked up and successfully used Marxism-Leninism to overthrow colonial and imperialist domination and to build proletarian power, while the theories associated with communization seem to be like the peculiar manifestations of very European thinkers with not much in the way of empirical success to back up the legitimacy of their theory. And so I guess I'll just I'll stop there and just sort of punt the ball back over the net because that's kind of where you know I'm initially coming at this stuff from.
3: Hey, hey, man! I threw a rock at a cop in 2009 in California. (laughs) What the fuck (laughs) are
2: you doing? Never mind, he's right. Never mind.
3: (laughs) No, I mean honestly, of all the pieces here, the one that made the most sense to me was um, was by Alberto Toscano, Mm. now and and never, and he basically brings up the elephant in the room where he's like, um, a lot of people were going oh, man, thank God that Soviet Union's gone so it doesn't discredit socialism anymore, you know? Yeah. And now we can now, now we can finally un- unleash the vitalistic revolutionary energies that the Soviet bureaucracy was holding back. <laughs> and uh, things don't really play out that way. Um, and I think, like, a, what a lot of these, you know, the sort of critiques of classic, classical social democracy, critiques of third international Marxism, you know, really existing socialism, all that stuff, like, what it kind of ignores is that most like revolutionary waves were kind of preceded and most of the moments where you know like left communists were urging for more militancy or more aggressive uh um, revolutionary action were usually preceded by an already kind of built up infrastructure done through more you know boring ass classical socialist and social democratic um organizations you know like i, I mean the french could talk all day. you know we got a yellow vest we got our riots and all that stuff but like there's still a pretty intense, you know, trade unionism, trade union movement there, you know, at least relative to the United States and other parts of the world. Maybe not historically, but a lot of this stuff, there, there already is some kind of, you know, pre-existing base for it from which these things spring. Like, it doesn't just, it doesn't just come out of a vacuum. And there isn't, I feel like there's like this myth of like, you know, I mean, they take it way too far when they act like, you know, are the socialist leaders or these leaders were holding back like the revolutionary energies of the proletariat. Yeah, that happens sometimes, but it's not this monocausal explanation for all revolutionary failures and the lack of the proletariat's capacity to do anything now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my take on, on the problem. It's, it's a problem that you find in some left communist criticisms and all, You also find it, I think even more intensively in the sort of communization currents uh, recently.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess I want to respond a bit to uh, the point about Marxism-Leninism and the success of those revolutions. Um, I think one of the targets is not only Leninism, broadly speaking, but it's also the Marxist variants of social democracy. It's also, um, we're also talking about labor-based anarchism, like Mm. anarcho-syndicalism. And we're also talking about um, left communism and ultra-left autonomism. And uh, what's... Being said here is that all of that is a failure, and only the failures that got power had a chance to be bloody, basically. And um, God help me, I do kind of buy that. I buy that the 20th century uh, is pretty ugly, and um, virtually all the all the theory that we have built up around the Russian gambit, um, I I don't know if we can... I don't know I don't know how to apply that stuff if we wanted to, and that doesn't mean I'm an anarchist or an ultra left or or a left com or any of that you know I think of myself as a revolutionary marxist i think I think there needs to be party and program I think there needs to be uh a critique of imperialism and of you know the the kind of revisionism that you see in the right wing of the social democracy um but it Actually, strikes me that empirically speaking, their weird theory that there's some kind of block on class identity right now—that class belonging appears as not something liberatory, but as kind of a an imposition on people's desires and and sense of Um, self—that seems right to me. Um, And and there is an empirical resonance that endnotes even kind of taunts Duvet about um, in I think it's endnotes three. They're like, um, oh, you know, you you said when there was going to be a crisis that people would realize labor politics again. Well, I don't know about that, man. What happened instead were these uprisings with these kind of fictive unities, these like names that people invent to try to build some kind of temporary unity, like the 99% or what have you. and um, and, and And instead of forming any institutions – they either fizzled out, or the institutions that they did form ended up being used against them. I mean Syriza is the best example um so there's an empirical resonance to the communization gibber jabber that once you get through the fucking wizard speak, i think um provides a real challenge to all revolutionary Marxists that aren't just Marxists in the sense of analysis but in the sense of politics in the sense of party and program um we all I think we all have to take this stuff seriously and um you know, with all due respect to the anti-colonial revolutions and to the attempts to stave off capitalism, uh, the way I consider that stuff a failure is that, you know, capitalism's being introduced to every single one of those places. There's even the Donju road in front of North Korea. Now, I mean, no autarky was strong enough. Capitalism truly has battered down every Chinese wall and we have to start again that I buy. I buy that stuff.
4: All right. So basically I got to go soon but I'm just going to try and hit this in one big sort of, you know, load. Uh, The labor movement is sort of, like, completely defeated, which is, like, the sort of basis of much of, like, communionization analysis, communionizer analysis, you know, this... I mean, Dave talks about wanting uh, the labor movement rising in a moment of crisis, and notes is pretty much about how, like, the workers' movement is not going to return return essentially and we need to find an, uh, not a new subject but just sort of like something outside of the proletariat even I, I don't I don't know uh, the surplus population I guess or, um, that whatever and this sort of idea that the labor movement is completely dead is something that's not particularly true of the global south like in India there was a extremely successful mass strike that was nationwide and involved millions of people. There's continuous struggle in China in terms of their labor movement and like young Marxists and uh, labor activists are being arrested. There's all these things that are happening in the global South that suggest that, you know, the the labor movement is alive. There's still, you know, programmist Marxists out there. You know, a lot of them tend to be still Stalinists and that sort of thing. But there's there's still a viable labor movement and mass movements that are still kicking in the global south. And even in the global north, you know, just in the United States, there has been an uptick in strikes. We've seen things like the teacher strike in Virginia, um, you know, a number of different things like that just suggest that maybe the labor movement is coming back now coming back in the global north and the labor movement in the global south is still there so there's still a viability of pro of just straightforward proletarian politics in my point of view just on a global level, just on a global level and maybe maybe in the global north it's coming back i'm not exactly a hundred percent sure since you know union numbers are still really low and the global North union uh, membership is really low. And, you know, you still have to deal with that kind of like reactionary union bureaucracy. And, you know, a lot of it's still tied to like, sort of like reactionary bourgeois parties, like the democratic party or at best like bourgeois labor parties, like the, like British labor. But yeah. Uh, and secondly, I, I really want to stress, even though I don't necessarily agree with the idea that the, the 20th century as a whole, uh communist movement as a whole is a complete failure. There have been major successes in terms of like r- just raising standards of living in the third uh, in like the developing world, uh, just supporting, supporting a lot of people like uh, liberating, the uh, national liberation movements getting independence for for in colonialized and imperialized peoples you know that sort of thing those are those are things that we should be proud about and we should brag about you know but at the same time we still need to be critical we can't just just say oh yeah this is just the product of uh Mar- the the success of the marxist leninist immortal the mortal signs of marxist leninism and that n- nothing bad really happened in the 20th century in terms of like just the way uh industrialization was rapid industrialization was implemented in the soviet union killing almost killing like millions of people and the way it was committed under stalin just that that sort of rapid industrialization of agriculture was probably one of the worst decisions made by any sort of communist, communist, like, you know, human history. And it was continually repeated by Marxist Leninists. And it was just this sort of uncritical defense of Marxist Leninism just doesn't, we can't, is not viable, even if we accept that there are, in fact, uh, legitimate legitimate um successes legitimate achievements of like the socialist movement and the 20th the communist movement in the 20th century and we don't go full communionizer sort of ultra left critique of the the 20th century communist experiment
1: i think rosa you have to uh shovel snow now is that correct
4: yeah, yeah, oh, I gotta God. go outside and snubble, oh. sh- shovel, shovel uh, snow.
1: Well, Godspeed. I uh, <laughs> yeah. thanks so much for being on. And uh, Brett, uh, I think you had a direct response to to all of that, right?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, like, definitely, I don't want my position to be confused with like a, a non-critical. Everything that Leninist did was was a great position, and I don't think I'm being accused of that necessarily. But just for for clarity's sake, there were enormous failures, enormous excesses of the 20th century socialist projects. But my, my position is simply that instead of completely just condemning them and saying, Hey, this was, you know, whatever. So state capitalism, this wasn't even socialism. These weren't even revolutions. They were coup d'etats. We have nothing to learn from them is actually anti-Marxist, right? Because the Marxist approach to the failures of the 20th century is to tease out the, the successes and failures learned what worked, why it worked, what failed, why it failed. Don't repeat the mistakes take the good things that actually did work and in the next opportunity put those into practice and see if they happen so i absolutely agree that there were you know complete like, failures and stuff of the 20th century project just that i feel like communization theory just wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's so uncomfortable to defend those movements because there were failures and excesses there's like you know this uh, this attempt to just disregard all of that and you can see some of the eclecticism some of the utopianism and some of just the being untethered from empirical evidence that gets generated when you totally turn your back on the Marxist projects of the 20th century. So I guess that's just a little bit of clarification for my position.
1: Jake?
3: Yeah, I just don't buy into this idea that the 20th century was a failure because the proletariat affirmed itself too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's just that's just like a mystified way of saying they didn't do communism. It's just, it's this, it's this tautological reasoning where it's like they didn't do communism because they didn't do communism. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, maybe maybe empiric. I mean, I think Rosa made a really good point that, you know, the United States is not the totality of what labor relations or where class struggle is in the world. You know, there's definitely places where it's probably a lot more active than it is here. And that's something that's important to keep in mind. But I was going to say, it's like, yeah, maybe in the United States, people empirically don't see themselves as proles. But uh, but if they don't see themselves as proles, they see themselves either as losers or entrepreneurs or temporary temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You know what I mean? Like, that's what people see themselves as. And so if you were to rebuild a class movement or if you were to create and try and forge a force that was capable of actually changing society, it would require some level of affirmation of, of proletarian identity because you, get, you need to get people to see the real conditions that they exist within, you know? So, like, yeah, I mean, this idea that the proletarian has nothing left to do, the proletariat has nothing left to do but negate itself. Well, they don't, what does that even mean? Like, that's tr- obviously that's true in the long term. You know, no Marxist or anyone who was an actual Marxist would disagree with that. But ha- that doesn't happen overnight. Like the the society is in significant part material and you have to change those things. And Those things take time to change. And so to get to a period where the proletariat has abolished itself is, you know, that's the end of. The dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, mm-hmm. these are classical categories, and you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater here and say, "Well, I guess the twentieth century was a failure, so that was all bollocks, so fuck it." You know, or let's let's wait for some kind of Deus ex machina where we just like riot our way to the right critical mass, sure. and then the and then communism happens because we do it right then. Um, and that's the other thing too. All this stuff. This is why I said it sounds like primo shit earlier. Is because there's all this stuff about like we got to get rid of mediation. It's like how do you have a global integrated society where there's no mediation? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, you don't. Anyway, yeah, right. yeah. You just have, yeah. You go, you go back to you go back to the woods and you you know hunt with hunt with sticks and shit like that and communicate with telepathy and you know whatever the fuck these people think you do.
1: <laughs> I'm listening to Uncle Ted on this one. That sounds convincing to me. Ted, <laughs> Prince, that is uh, that's a throwback swampside episode there. <laughs> well, uh, they're, yeah. They're,
3: Zerzan's the one who's convinced there was telep- telepathy in prehistoric <laughs> yes, times, but I think that's just because he watched. Like I think he just because he smoked too many bowls and watched the Flintstones and heard the characters <laughs> thinking on the show and thought that that's what it was like
1: <laughs> uh for the folks out there who don't know what uh, we're referring to that is anarcho-primitivism uh which says that uh you know the the, the fall of humanity you know uh, in its lapsarian moment was when we created language so we must <laughs> abolish language <laughs> they do go that far <laughs> um yeah. I, we're gonna get to, to the conclusion uh uh to our concluding statements in a little bit but um you know, what I would like to say is I, I think all this all this criticism is, is totally valid. I think that, you know, what what Dovey tries to do and Nesik, who is his collaborator, is uh, he very much upholds this um, line that we're critiquing that it was merely a lack of proletarian elan, as he called it, um, or it was merely the uh, failures of, uh, of a leadership to allow, you know, these uh, working class struggles to really bear fruit, That is the reason why communization and communism didn't take place. To give the devil its due, I I think that theory communists and endnotes also, they don't have this idealist type conception of uh, how these things happen. Uh, It's much more grounded in, again, this deep sort of theoretical I don't know analysis uh based on you know these periodizations of capitalist development and the real and formal subsumption of the working class into production and then into social reproduction and a moment in time where programmatism was uh a valid and um understandable step that the proletariat took but now in this last 40 years you know we've moved to a point where it can only be negative um So I think in a sense, they they think that what happened, what what Brett's talking about and and what others uh, are talking about with Marxist-Leninism and the workers' movement, I think that there's a sense for them that that was overdetermined at that point in time. But uh, at this moment, we've moved to a a new phase. Now, Mm -hmm. that said, um, when I look at the examples that they use, uh, because if we, again, take seriously the idea that... uh, Working class activity comes directly out of the material and social conditions that they are struggling within and struggling against. I don't find the the riots and the suicidal struggles uh, and the factory um, the, the severance packages that uh, T.C. talks about, or the picateros in Argentina, these kind of like non-workerist um, moments and events. I don't find that convincing. Uh, empirical evidence to say that we are in this new phase and that you know there 's no, uh, no way forward with uh, affirmation and programmatism uh, that you know, we must be purely negative in this particular stage. I think that they try to bring some empirical you know, on the ground examples to bear, but i 'm not convinced by what they give that uh, you know as folks were saying that programmatism or affirmation is dead at this point in time they, they give it a shot, but i, I don 't think they do it. I'd like to
5: maybe go back to how Marx tries to thread the needle on this negation positivity matter, because it's funny to me the way these communizationists present this point about the proletariat being negationary as novel, as recent, or anything of that nature, because it was something Marx was saying, and I think saying better, in the 1840s. Um, If I could uh, I quoted this actually pretty recently on Swampside, so our, our listeners will have to bear with hearing it again. But if I could quote a contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right from 1844, where then is the positive possibility of a German emancipation answer? In the formulation of a class with radical chains, a class of civil society, which is not a class of civil society, an estate which is the dissolution of all estates, a sphere which has a universal character by its universal suffering and claims no particular right because no particular wrong, but wrong generally, is perpetuated against it, which can invoke no historical, but only human title." which does not stand in any one-sided antithesis to the consequences, but in all-round antithesis to the premises of the German political system. A sphere, finally, which cannot emancipate itself without emancipating itself from all other spheres of society and thereby emancipating all other spheres of society, which, in a word, is the complete loss of man, and hence can win itself only through the complete rewinning of man. This dissolution of society as a particular estate is the proletariat and so its positive content is negationary in a certain way and i think that is maybe making a different point than endnotes is making and i i think marx makes a better point
3: yeah i was, I was just gonna say real quick um actually looking at this kind of the current kind of era and describing coming at it from a different angle i kind of like badu's age of riots thesis better um where he basically he basically compares it to that same period that marx was writing how you know, there's this, there this period in the early 19th century where, again, a lot of the activity of the proletariat was very negationary and, you know, essentially riots. And it's sort of a pre-political moment that has yet to find kind of its core animating idea and form of organization. And the, I think that it's important to look at questions of organization, but not to become too fixated upon it. And I can see how stuff like this leads down a rabbit hole of trying to find the perfect sort of organization without focusing on its outward effect on society but right. anyway i was just gonna i mean actually as as hard as i've been going at this stuff and communization as a concept like all the different like kind of publications historically like associated with it have had interesting insights and pretty good articles you know like i mean even, even Endnotes, like you know they had, there's a thing there's a piece in there on like uh the horizons of feminist struggle within capitalism that's pretty good you know so i mean it's, some of the stuff's worth reading but the whole, the overall kind of like framework and concept of communization is what I would tell people to take with a grain of salt. Um, I don't know if that's a, like an accessible segue, but that's just kind of. Mm. If right. anyone has anything else, that's, that's cool. I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that um, you know, we are ready to segue out to some concluding remarks uh, to synthesize things, uh, unless anybody else wants to jump in. Speak now or forever hold your peace.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: um, what. Who, 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 what was your favorite text out of everything we read? I know Jake, you said you liked Toscano and I, I'm going to, I'm going to jump on team Toscano too, just because I think he takes the future more seriously than everyone else. But what is, what did everyone think of, you know, in that regard? What's your favorite?
2: For me, I, yeah. I kind of like the, the chapter two, communization in the present tense. I really do like uh, TC and end notes much more than I like Taquan Quan and the invisible committee for what that's worth. That's probably because they're more rooted in Marxism but yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed. I just enjoyed reading uh, chapter two more than anyone
1: else. I gotta oh, say shit. the same thing. Yeah, I, I thought that uh, rereading it because I've read it before, but I think the theory um, whatever you think of their conclusions, uh, the method was was really fascinating. Kind of, uh, I don't know, re- rereading of uh, of of theory and and history that uh, you know was I think novel and enjoyable in a bizarre, I don't know, self immolating way as I you know plod my way through <laughs> it. <laughs> I would say I'm most aligned with the first essay
5: in this collection because it is the one that is the most oriented towards criticizing the rise of communization as radical chic and the one that really drives home that if your theory is just the self-affirmation of a radical milieu's politics, that you're not really doing proletarian theory. You're, You're not really looking at the proletariat you're just trying to instrumentalize people for your politics.
2: All right. So for concluding remarks, I just wanted to say that, you know, this is a, this is a difficult, um, you know, topic to, to tackle. There's lots of facets to it and we have, you know, five or six people in this conversation. So I'm excited to see how the rest of the series plays out, which will be without me, but I'll definitely be tuning in as much as I can. But as for concluding remarks, I think whenever I engage with theory, there's a couple of things that I'm really looking for. And I, You know, some of my critiques of anarchism gets extended to communization, especially when it comes to um, the the fear of how you can avoid merely becoming isolated in in communes or autonomous territories, right? For me, socialism must challenge global capitalist hegemony. And that means socialism must be big, it must be powerful, and it must be able to fight back against capitalist imperialism or just, you know, the economic imperialism inherent in capitalism. And I'm not sure that um, communization is capable of doing that in part, because I don't think that they have a mechanism by which to build and maintain a mass base of support. Um, it seems very eclectic, voluntaristic, as has as been mentioned before. And there's really no way of, you know, in Leninism or Maoism, this constant engagement with the masses. You, you build proletarian power through going out, serving the people, showing them through your actions that it's the communist who can fight your landlord with you. You know, it's the communist that can make sure that your kids have healthy food and not sitting back and just writing endless theory that regular working people will never engage with. So, you know, not only do you need that, but finally I think you need a mechanism by which after you build a revolution, how do you defend it, right? And and by defending it you have to suppress counter-revolution and if possible, you got to fund arm and materially help in any way you can other socialist movements around the world so they can spread and grow. And I think on all of these counts, communization, at least what I read of it here, which, you know, to be fair is just a a slice of the overall pie of communization. But I think on these counts so far, communization fails. And, and I'll, I'll just wrap up my, my closing account with how J. Malfawad Paul in The Communist Necessity wrapped up his subchapter on communization. And he says, what do these theories offer then, even according to the general standards of creative quality? The same movement to spontaneity, the same vague insurrection, the same distant horizon. Eclecticism is barely imaginative. It is about as creative as an elementary school collage. And in this eclectic mobilization of theory that is only imaginative in appearance, there is a return to all of the utopian mistakes of the past. So I think that might be a little too harsh. um, I kind of walk away feeling very much in line with JMP right there. So those are
1: my closing remarks. All right, Jake, what do you got?
2: Um, Well, you know,
3: and to be fair to the to to be fair to the communization, especially authors, especially contemporarily, they're grappling with some very difficult theoretical questions mm-hmm. um but the issue that i have with them is that they're kind of drawing the wrong lessons from the 20th century and their framework sucks like the, this idea that you know mediation is part of the is the problem uh or is, is a big part of the problem doesn't really help anybody and you know the fact that they're not really tethered to any you know quote-unquote real movement or whatever and that they don't seem to see this as like a significant problem uh you know it's uh it's problematic for lack of a better word and yeah i mean i certainly don't have the answers to the questions of you know what is the correct revolutionary strategy right now i leave that to mike mcnair but (laughs) i think i think that um you can't completely eliminate spontaneity from the equation you know in terms of revolutionary strategy but placing so much emphasis on the spontaneous initiative of the masses not only to like get things going again whatever that means but to know how exactly how to make communism that's a problem because society is a complex machine where you can't just be like oh well if people want to do poetry instead of making bread today there will be no bread you know <laughs> like there like it's it really does seem like a like a recipe for disaster and so I would like to I would like to see something that had a clearer medium and long term vision of what things might actually look like, if only from a speculative standpoint, because, yeah, just leaving it up to the, like, the spontaneous energy of the masses, I don't think is is a very good idea. And I think that's something that oftentimes like Mao gambled on that. And look how that shit worked out for him. Anyway, uh, that's enough of me rambling. Somebody else can probably speak in a more coherent articulate way right now. Let's see. Well, okay, I'll I'll speak
0: anyway. Um <laughs> does no mediation mean no condoms? I mean people to- <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um so in general I think the Anglo expression of communization ends up being the best. Why do I think this? It's because they end up are they end up being some of the only people to actually bother reading the analytical Marxists, which are some like bowtie nerds that use academic norms of bourgeois society to do Marxist theory. But they read them as I've always wanted people to read them, which is backwards, because most of these analytical Marxists end up revisionists or reformists of some variety, the exception of Robert Brenner. Um, and most of them are students of Robert Brenner, I should say, um, that uh, that they really get the, the not the straw man, but the Iron Man version of, of the challenge that um, that analysis presents us when we realize what a long shot we're dealing with for communist revolution. And um I think like Jake said about Mike McNair that um the project of bu- rebuilding revolutionary Marxism uh, essentially from the ground up, but not totally. Like um <laughs> n- but not totally. That's something that we need to take seriously as Marxists. Uh Mike McNair doesn't like to be called an analytical Marxist, but I think that he is in all the best ways. And he's the only theorist that I've read that really has something to say to uh, end notes and the best of the communizers. And it's really this. How do we grapple with the representative institutions of state, of, of politics, so-called, and dismantle the body of armed men that holds the bourgeois state together uh, without being sucked into the swamp and defending the, arm, the, the bourgeois state? Um, this leads me to take the concept of betrayal much more seriously than the structuralists allow themselves to do because you know, of, of incentive structures or what have you. I, uh, there's a theorist Lizzie Kolowalski who eventually becomes a terrible anti-communist, but he, um, he roots the concept of the left and the possibility of betrayal that just because somebody's following the incentive structures of the representative institution that you stuck them in, that doesn't absolve them. We do have to find ways to keep so-called our people accountable. And in this, sea of radical milieu of careerists and starfuckers. it's almost impossible to imagine what it would mean for us to have our institutions for communists to have pro-proletarian institutions and to to really like grapple with what that kind of structure could be is our essential task the communizers are so witheringly structuralist or they're total, you know, dumbass, like beautiful souls. And notes makes a real, some real harsh critiques of the, you know, the the people that are that can see the, all the bad things, but are still good. You know, uh, if that essay was all that, and not some of the wizard gibberish at the end, I think that would have been my favorite. Um, but the structuralists are too, are they too withering? They're too harsh. And you know what happens when people erect a big, terrible framework that there's no way out of? They switch sides. There's the so called minister of sick that became um, a a, that took a position in the Syriza government in Greece. I've met that guy. Um, There was a defector from Endnotes that joined the DSA. Um, You know, there's uh, what they're not doing is the thing that Marx really wanted us to do, which was to find uh, something in between Bakunin, you know, the insurrectionary anarchist, and uh, LaSalle, the guy that was like, hey, let's. Let's just get the, the, you know, the fucking German state uh, and we'll buddy up with the, the big old state machine against the events, against capitalism and against the bourgeoisie. Marx wanted us to participate in the representative in- institutions that uh, bourgeois governance nor- often allows for. And but, but we have to do that without betraying the revolution. That's our challenge. Uh, Endnotes has a critique of radical milieu and say that the the other critiques of radical milieu that come out of communization, they protest too much. But I think 10 years on or, or whatever, we can see that Endnotes wasn't able to overcome this problem either. Um, and so it leaves us in a position where I think we need to take betrayal more seriously than these people do. Maybe not in the naive way that you know the, the Maoists do or whatever, but... they they do take the wrong lessons from the 20th century. Even if I think their overall viewpoint is very sober and maybe a more responsible starting point than, you know, a revivalist of a lost cause.
1: All right, Grant, uh, what do you
5: got for us? Well, I think even communization seems to be part of this general left tendency to put politics first, um, in a very instrumental way. And, You know, even with communization, it's how can we get a revolutionary subject to shape and mold into the the proper kind of what have you, rather than Marx's free development of each. And so I think if we're looking for something to do ourselves, like as the real people we are, then this and Leninism are both self-externalizing. I don't think we go out to the struggle to build a base. I think communists help the proletariat in its own development by getting attuned to their own personal real social interests to where they themselves are having their interests abridged by capitalism. I think that's even what Marx was doing writing theory. And so I think ultimately, is it going to be an us commanding them or is it going to be an us working with them? Uh, is there even going to be an us in them? And I think communication is still mired in this leftist perspective of Just wanting to organize the plebs right. And that's not where I come
1: from. So, yeah... I I think I think everybody's points are very well taken on this, and I think that um, it's good that all of us, uh, you know, those who aren't communizers, whatever that means practically and uh, materially, uh, are engaging with this sort of stuff because I think the the problematic that they are that they're bringing up uh, is an important one, uh, which is that um, there's been successes and there's been failures, and so often the left, you know, whatever tendency you are, breaks down to what historical moment in time and what historical figure and mass movements and actions uh is the correct one for everything moving forward now that's a bit of a straw man right but i think that these battles over oh was it 1917 was it uh 1919 1921 when the revolution failed was it the rise of stalin blah 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 i think it's it's not only alienating to to a lot of folks uh who aren't as nerdy and into this stuff as we are but i think it also doesn't do enough justice to the ways in which the 20th century as bloody and brutal as it was uh it's gone now. It's left us. And I don't mean that just in a we shouldn't learn any lessons from it. I mean that a lot of the the, the chief concerns of um, revolutionaries, uh, communists, socialists, anarchists, and otherwise of the 20th century was the development of productive forces, was how do you turn a, you know, incipient or uh, an insipid, what's the word? How do you turn a, 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 um, a newly born working class and how do you take a, a peasant population and how do you increase those productive forces to the extent that you can build socialism, you know, let alone communism? I think that maybe what, Endnotes and TC and these others do well is they caution us that um, the issues that we face today are not the same as they were in the past. And if we don't, we don't have to accept their solution to the problem, their practical solution, which is this kind of immediacy and this sort of uh, full negationism. But we should take seriously the idea that um, developmentalism is not what we need to be shooting for right now. In fact, if anything, the productive forces are very pregnant right now. And uh, what we would have to do if, um, you know, the working class were to come into power would be ultimately to start dismantling a lot of the, um, you know, Uh, extractive and destructive industries that capitalism has created that's destroying this world. So I think that, you know, if if anything, the lesson I get from this first little, you know, dip into the communization is that we should be thinking on our feet, we should be looking at real movements, and we should try to, you know, freshen our own theory and our own practice moving forward so that we're not imposing on today. Uh, the lessons that were learned in the past while we're also not forgetting those and understand that uh, in some ways because of development, you know, we are in a new world, uh, a completely new world that puts up new problems and ones that we're going to have to solve in potentially very novel ways because the last thing I'll say is that Uh, As everybody here knows, and many of the listeners uh, have heard, um, feudalism took hundreds of years to give way to capitalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're only about 150 years into uh, a new transition. Uh, We might fail. We uh, might end up in the ruin of the contending classes, as Mark said. But, uh, you know, the the, the day is still young. And so I think that the, the positivity... Uh, that we had uh, in this conversation in terms of uh, what what we found valuable is something that we should take forward and uh, continue to talk about, you know, whether it's in the frame of communization or just simply what is to be done in general. Hmm. So uh, I don't know. Does anybody uh, have anything else to throw out there? I think, I think we did a good job guys. Well done. This has been a
0: tremendously satisfying conversation and I look forward to all of our installments coming up.
1: Hell yeah.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Brett. As well, um, hopefully, maybe sometime down the line when we're wrapping up or something, you might want to pop in. But I, I understand if you don't want to read, you know, four hundred pages of Wizardry. <laughs> yeah.
1: I feel like a real anti-Harry uh, Potter tendency among this one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. That's okay. No, no, Wizard School fantasies allowed.
2: Brett. Bro, I do want to say thank you both for having me on this introductory episode of this ongoing series. Like I said, I've only got a little slice of communization theory, so I actually do look forward to listening to um, your two shows. Continue to collaborate and teach me more on it. Really appreciate all the uh, hospitality, all the different opinions. I love Swampside Chats. I love the Antifada, so
1: long live the collab and uh-huh. Long Live Revolutionary Left Radio and The Red Menace and all of the podcasts within that network. Uh, thanks so much, everybody, to uh, Brett, to Lexi, to Grant, to Jake, and to Rosa, who's currently shoveling snow. <laughs> it's uh-huh. been a real pleasure, folks. And uh, yeah, uh, great episode. We'll, uh, we'll call it. All right. This has been the real movement. <laughs> Indeed, it Indeed. Is.
3: Lincoln,
4: paralyzed,
2: flat on my back, this our world is built in endeavor,
1: But every man is for himself, wealth is for the one that wants it, paradise, if you
2: can earn it, Oh